You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, everyone. You're all very welcome. My name is Eve Patton. I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is this building. And this, for those of you who haven't been with us before, is our research institute for the arts and humanities. Uh, and the hub runs a regular behind the headlines series. And this is to explore issues that are current in the news and to ideally to bring to them some insights from our scholars and researchers and experts uh, in the arts and humanities, whether it's from history or from language or from literature or from ethics, philosophy, law, or simply from, from human experience. Uh, Behind the Headlines is sponsored by the Pollard Foundation, so my thanks to them and to you for joining us this evening for this discussion uh, of the meaning of home and, of course, that is in advance of the coming referendum which is on our minds at the moment. Uh, As you know, on the 8th of March, voters will be asked if they want to amend the Constitution, first of all, to provide for a wider concept (coughs) of family, and then, of course, to think about removing that problematic reference to women in the home. Mm. But also, as you will know, if they wish to insert a new article, and this has to do with the provision of care, Now, uh, we realise that these are, uh, in language terms, in legal terms, in in, in all respects, uh, quite complicated articles, quite complicated amendments, so I hope you will forgive us. We have put the uh, the textual suggestions on a handout for you, which we don't normally do, but we thought it might be useful for some of you if you want to refer, as the speakers are talking, to what is actually being proposed in terms of these changes. Again, as you all know, uh, Ireland's constitution has been amended in the past, uh, and I think Ireland is rightly proud of the fact that it can evolve and change in this regard. But these decisions are never straightforward, and the decision in March is complicated by conflicting ideas of gender roles, by uh, conflicting ideas of what domestic life represents, of family, of marriage, of what relationships consist of, uh, of care and carers, and above all, perhaps, of the concept of what home means. Um, Now that we've moved so very far from 1937 into an era when, as you know, the idea of home has become, for many people, an increasingly fragile expectation. So to help us through these questions and to discuss the changes that have been proposed to the Constitution, I'm really pleased to welcome four speakers uh, who are all qualified to, to talk on this subject from different angles. And I'm going to introduce them only very briefly so that we have plenty of time this evening in the order that you'll hear them speaking. So first of all, we'll be hearing from Professor Lindsay Erneburn, uh, immediately on my right. And Lindsay is the Professor of Contemporary Irish History in Trinity School of History and Humanities. She joined us last year. She is uh, widely published, again, as many of you will know, in the areas of of gender roles, domestic life, and child welfare in relation to modern Irish history. Uh, And so she'll be able to trace for us some of the historical backdrop to uh, the current proposals. Secondly, we're going to hear from Dr. Claire O'Connell. And Claire joins us as a legal expert specialising in questions of Irish law and the recognition of parentage and of children's rights in the context 
of assisted human reproduction. Claire is a board member of LGBT Ireland and serves on the LGBT Plus Parenting Alliance and I think is very well positioned to speak to the complex intersections of constitutional law and shifting definitions of the family. Third, we will hear from my colleague, Professor Rachel Walsh, <coughs> who joins us from Trinity School of Law. Uh, Rachel is a constitutional law expert, but she's also a property lawyer. I'm not sure if that's good or bad, uh, but she is the author of many works, including Property Rights and Social Justice from 2021, and is co-author of Kelly, the Irish Constitution from 2018. So again, extremely well qualified to talk this evening uh, particularly, I think, on how existing constitutional conceptions of home have interacted with protections for family and women in, in various court decisions in the past and what ramifications these might have for our decisions in the referendum. And finally, we'll be hearing from Senator Tom Clonan. And Tom, again, I think many of you will know, serves on the Trinity College Shannon panel. Uh, he will address the proposed constitutional amendment on care this evening. And this is as it relates to responsibility of family. And you'll see in, in the handout uh, the article, the proposed 42B, um, that he'll be speaking to. I think many of you will be aware from the media of just how frequently and how effectively Tom has contributed to discussions, including those that have taken place in the Shannon on the 39th Amendment of the Constitution, the Family Bill in 2023, and how uh, warmly and emotionally he has spoken about his own lived experience as a carer and about disabled citizens' access to supports in the community or outside the home. So these are our four speakers. Uh, they each have a very limited 10 minutes um, to speak to this topic. And then we're going to open to you, to the audience, for your questions and comments. So please keep these in your mind as you listen to our speakers. I'll not be coming in again between them. We'll simply listen to them in that order. Uh, and I'll hand over at this point with a welcome to Lindsay Ernieburn. Lindsay. That's a stopwatch. <laughs> I see some of my students in the audience and they'll know that if I didn't have a timer here for 10 minutes, there's no way I'd stick to it. So I'm going to press that on and start. Uh, thank you very much for coming. I think it's wonderful uh, in our democracy that people are so interested to be informed when they go to vote. And I think that's the most important thing that we're going to do this evening, whatever way you vote, that you'll hopefully leave here this evening knowing maybe a little bit more about some aspect. Um, I'm not qualified in the legal part of it, but I think I am in the historical context of the Constitution itself, the 1937 Constitution. Um, and I think its importance historically is that it was part of a process of shaping citizenship in a relatively new state, in, and in particular, engendering that citizenship. Um, and this was something that had been happening gradually since the foundation of the state in 1922. I think also a vital context for thinking around the family and women's place in the uh, constitution and a, actually in the home and what was meant by that term is the anxiety mounting since the war regarding women's increasing public role in society. 
the victory over suffrage, which many people regretted in the political establishment of Ireland of the day, the violence during the Civil War in particular, where women had quite a prominent role, and their, the prominence in their role was actually inflated in much of the media. They were referred to as crazed women by members of the Catholic hierarchy. And I think we, we, we need to remember that, that that was still very much in people's imaginative uh, mind's eye when they were thinking about writing Ireland in a constitution. Also, another really important thing to keep in mind um, uh, is the 1929 crash. Uh, it's vital in terms of reconfiguring contemporaries' understanding of unemployment. They were gradually moving away from the idea of the Id idle man, that kind of moralistic sense of those who didn't have work, gradually, into the concept of unemployment being structural. And because it was so widespread after 1929, it really forced people to think about the economic model and the way in which they could possibly, I suppose, protect the, the majority of people. And they landed on the breadwinner model. The idea that if the man, the family man, is paid enough, uh, what the Catholic Church referred to as a just family wage, then there would be no need for women to take men's jobs in the market. And I think it's really important because women were um, situated as problem workers, and you see that really starting in the 1920s and 1930s. They're undercutting men, which is ironic. They're blamed for the fact that they're paid badly, but there you go. And this, there's all sorts of voices in the public arena anxious about this worker and what she's doing to undermine the family, at the same time as being anxious about the female voter and what she might do um, with her newfound power. So I think that's really important to remember. And I'm struck by some of the debates at the moment about the, the current decisions we have facing us, how much of our contemporary anxieties are informing that as well, but also how our understandings right at this moment. Somebody was saying that the 1937 constitution is value laden. Of course it is. That's the point. And now we have a chance to reflect on those values again. But in terms of the the reaction to the Constitution from the women, which I'm, I've been most interested uh, about, and they had a fairly visceral reaction to the articles that were being asked to consider uh, in March. They'd been watching their newfound citizenship, this equality without any bars promised to them in 1916, being frittered away bit by bit, and, were, <coughs> and had very good reason to be anxious. They, unlike many of their male counterparts, looked out at the growing fascist Europe and realized where that could lead if the state had too much power. This starts with things, incremental things like the 1924 statutory order, which limited the number of females working in the civil servants, denying them permanent posts, denying them access to pensions, <coughs> and insisting that they retire on marriage. This might sound like a small thing, but women's growth and education in the 19th century had resulted in almost a 200% increase of women in clerical jobs. So they were a really visible manifestation of women's changing role, and they were causing profound anxiety. So that was one easy way to sort of cut that, that path off. And how was it cut off? It was cut off on the grounds of protection of the family. And I think that to me is really important, what Sarah Appy calls the ruse of protection, um, which is in fact actually another word for control. So they were anxious about this, they knew what it was, they called it out for what it was. Then 1925, the new free state government moves to uh, close down the option of having parliamentary divorces. This was an option open to very few people as it was, but it was a signal of where the state was going. And then the 1927's Juries Act. And I'm not even going to go into any of that because I've got experts on the panel, but I always say to, to, to my students, the thing that really upsets me most about that 
and the women campaigners at the time were well aware of it, is less women's uh, uh, obligation or right to serve on juries, but rather all those women that came before the courts and were not judged by a jury of their peers mm -hmm. until after 1975. And, th and what, in terms of what that did to justice, we don't know because we kept such bad records of the courts. Mm. So actually trying to figure out exactly the way that laid out, but there's no doubt that that must have changed the most, one of the most important arenas for democracy, which is the justice system. You removed women's voices uh, in such a crucial way. And then the 1932 marriage bar. And I'm, I'm, this is a shopping list of what, which was all on these women's agenda when they came to the, the constitution. Uh, in 1937. The marriage bar is, is targeted at teachers because of course that's another area of massive growth for female employment but what research has shown is that it gives license to every other employer to create a de facto marriage bar. I think we have a maternity bar now but the marriage bar is what was instituted across the employment market and women saw what that was actually doing to, to women on the ground. In, 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 somebody mentioned in the introduction there the lived experience of many women um, who were not working to further their careers but to survive. Um, and then the Employment Act of 1936, very much a response to the growing male unemployment and it gives any government an opportunity to control women's uh, uh, place in the workforce. Now, I'm aware I've got three, three minutes and 46 seconds, so I'm getting to the Constitution. Okay, 1937 Constitution. This is a project in some senses of one man, de Valera, but this is a man who thinks he channels the spirit of a particular type of Ireland. He's waited a long time to have a chance to right that Ireland, to fix the wrongs of the 1922 Constitution, and to express the spirit of the country he thinks uh, uh, that he is kind of coming to rule. He's helped by various other male figures, but virtually no women at all. Uh, the women, when they see the draft Constitution, very few people are concerned before this is published are horrified that the clear unequivocal promise of equality in the 1916 proclamation and the not too bad promise of equality in 1922 is gone and they're worried particularly about article 16 40 41 and 45 uh, I'm not going to talk about them but I think it's important to say that they win some really important changes in article 16 uh, at 9 16 and 45 they get uh, without distinction of a sec of se sex included in those if you check the Constitution after this paper you can check how fundamentally that changed those. Uh, but they failed, if you like, in, in Article 41. Um, and I think, I was asked about this earlier, why? Because it was a harder sell. Um, because for a lot of people, the idea that the state might actually not force them out of the home due to economic necessity was not a, a, a terrible prospect. In fact, Louis Bennett, who represented the workers' union, said, okay, she objected to the, the, the wording in the Constitution, and she said, well, first of all, if you really do want to protect women in the family, why don't you specify that fathers actually have to use the salary they earn to feed the children that they bring into this world? Where are they? And the second thing she said is, why don't you actually just get rid of property and unemployment and then you don't need to be promising anybody any protection about anything? So she, and her words really, this is, you know, 1937, I, they're, they're as relevant today, I think, in many sense. She was also concerned as a woman who was not married and many of the women who campaigned against the Constitution were in same-sex relationships clearly worried about the sort of families that were being protected, but that was something that was too difficult to take on in the time, because the notion of the family was a very particular notion. You mentioned in passing property, and it was really about a bourgeois of the family, a particular middle-class vision, those who could stay at home in that domestic paradise that actually was denied most people. Louis Bennett said 90% of the women she represents work through necessity, not because they want to. Um, McQuaid, who was to be the future Archbishop, but he was very much the Archbishop in waiting because Archbishop Byrne was unwell at the time, said to de Valera, the feminists are confused. 
Um, and he said, but not to worry, the encyclicals will set them straight. Um, and other commentators within the Catholic media referred to these women as unchristian liberals who were seeking to exclude religion from public life. But actually, they were very careful not to critique religion at all. And they realized that they had to you know, work within very uh, strict parameters. Uh, just to end, I'd like to remember their successes. I also think they left, they would be really stunned to think that it took till 2024 for us to be asked to consider this notion of the family again. Mm -hmm. uh, Maria Luddy says it's like the last big campaign before the 1970s. I don't think that's actually fair. I think a lot of grass work, work went down on at, at a kind of lower level. But I do think that one of the things that they were trying to say and that their feminism after 1937 showed clearly was that this constitution doesn't have teeth in terms of people's lived experiences and is not going to materially change anything, but it can be used actually to restrict the opportunities that women have. And if you look at the changes that happened over the 20th century, the thing that changes most is the development of single-headed female households. And the thing that marks them out from all other families is their vulnerability to poverty. And they are not included in the definition of the family. And I'm going to stop. Hello. Um, that was excellent. I'm really worried. Uh, <laughs> I was really concerned, um, as probably a lot of you are, to see the Irish Times article that you know about fifty-three percent of the kind of people who were canvassed don't seem to fully understand the implications of the referendum. Mm. Um, and look, lads, I'm a bit worried that after ten minutes of constitutional law with me, I'm not sure if that will go down or up. But anyway, um, so I'm delighted to be here today. I'm very grateful to be asked. Um, I'll be focusing on the referendum relating to the family. Uh, and the proposal to include the concept of durable relationships into Article 41 of the Constitution. So, before I get into kind of a whistle-stop tour of the case law, I'd like to ground us a little bit in what constitutional change can mean. So, the best way to start, perhaps, is to explain that Article 41 is the article which bases the family on marriage. Um, and it has historically been held this way for over 80 years, and this was reaffirmed only a couple of weeks ago in the Supreme Court judgment of O'Mara and the Minister for Social Protection. Mm. But that is not to say that unmarried couples or individuals do not have other constitutional rights. <coughs> I'm a little sorry for any headaches I might cause by this next part, but it is different under the Constitution to talk about a married couple and an unmarried couple. It's different to talk about an unmarried man and an unmarried father. It's a different thing to talk about an unmarried woman and an unmarried mother. All of these have different constitutional contexts which arise primarily when a piece of legislation is challenged on the basis of its constitutionality, have regard to one of these people, one of these groupings. So it's also important to note that there's an underlying presumption that a law passed by the Oireachtas is constitutional and also that the courts do show due deference to the Oireachtas in re regulating and legislating for matters that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So while the constitution itself is kind of a proclamation of high-level rights, principles and values, um, for us that are supremely important, it's the government of the day and the legislature who really take what the courts say and put it into law. And that's what impacts, I suppose, for the most part our lives and the choices by made by those in power. So it's also the case to say that the case law in these areas traced back to Inriem in 1946, to Nicolau in 1966, 
Murphy in 1982, Reed J.H. in 1985, J.K. in 89, Moore in 96, Bibian in 2006, J. McDee in 2010, Moore in 2014, Gory in 2020, and now the O'Mara case in 2024. So I was a bit annoyed today that I didn't bring any prizes for anyone who might be able to repeat all those back to me at the end of this. But uh, the point I'm trying to make with naming all of those is that I've named about 11 cases there over the last 80 years that give us a bit of a grounding in this. So it really is difficult to say on a day-to-day -day basis what a particular law might mean or what might be constitutional or not. Um, so there are a number, however, of summary constitutional points that we can kind of get from the case law to date. So the first is that the family under Article 1 is the one that's based on marriage. This family is a constitutional concept that is said to be the primary and fundamental unit group of society, a moral institution possessing inalienable and imprescriptible rights and antecedent and superior to all positive law. What does that all mean? It just means that it's placed on this very, very high pedestal in terms of when the rights of the marital family can be interfered with. The second is that the unmarried mother has a constitutional right to the natural care and custody of her child under Article 40.3, and it's a natural right, so it's not dependent on her being married. However, the splitting of motherhood and surrogacy between the genetic and the gestational elements is not something as clearly constitutionally understood. The third is that the unmarried father does not have any constitutional rights but that does not mean that the legislature cannot give him statutory rights in legislation. There is also a constitutional right of the child to the society of the father, and this is taken into account in determining what legal status he has. So I should also note there's been a considerable judicial discussion about the spectrum that exists about unmarried fathers and perhaps the level of interest or involvement that they may have in their child's life. Yeah. And this will often determine how much power that can be given to that person. And again, it kind of <laughs> follows into this idea of committed or durable relationships. So the fourth is that the constitutional rights of children are the same, regardless of the marital status of the parents. This was only said really very clearly in case law, but it's, it's been reaffirmed after Article 42A, which is the uh, just constitutional article dealing with the children, um, and most recently in a case called Rejj and then in O'Mara. So the fifth is that de facto families, which have been held to be this concept of, again, a committed relationship, somebody who, uh, I suppose, with a partner or with their children, have committed themselves to each other over perhaps a period of years or have what the European court calls family life. Mm. So the fifth is that these de facto families, as they've been referred to by the courts, are not recognised by the constitution. So this has arisen in the case law in the context of an unmarried father who lived with the child uh, as a family for six years, and also in the concept of two women who were not married and who conceived their child through donor conception. However, I should note this was before marriage equality. So finally, it's important to note that even where the family based on marriage is given a special status in legislation, this is always going to be subject to the equality guarantee in Article 40 of the Constitution. So this article prescribes that all citizens shall, as human persons, be held equal before the law with due regard to differences of physical and moral capacity and of social function. So what does that mean? Um, it has meant in the first instance that married families can't be treated less favourably than unmarried couples. And while unmarried couples can be treated less favourably than married couples, it cannot be done so in a manner that's arbitrary, that's capricious, um, for example, any difference of treatment, it has to be rational, it has to be proportionate. Um, and so this was evidenced most clearly in the O'Mara judgment, which I've mentioned. This case arose in the context of a man who had been in a relationship with his life partner for almost 20 years, over which time they had three children. Very sadly, she died in 2021, and Mr O'Mara was refused access to the widow's contributory pension. 
um, which was only available to spouses and surviving civil partners. So the court unanimously found that this was unconstitutional, having regard to the equality guarantee of Article 40, insofar as it excluded Mr O'Mara and his children. However, the court split slightly in their opinion as to whether or not the family under Article 41 is still the one based on marriage. So the majority opinion, which was authored by the Chief Justice, uh, Mr Justice O'Donnell, um, found essentially that Article 41 only applies to married families, and while he criticised the approach of previous courts to unmarried persons, particularly parents, he found himself simply unable to depart from the precedent that existed for about 20, for 20 so sorry, 80 years. So Mr Justice Wolfe and Mr Justice Hogan dissented on the basis of kind of a textual analysis of the reading of the articles around it. So for example, Article 42 that comes right after it, it talks about parents and children and it talks about their right to education. So Mr Justice Wolfe, for example, is saying, well, come on now, if family is only that which is based on married families, we can't, for example, say that the right to education is only um, available to children of married couples. Um, and similarly, in Article 41.2, the woman in the home, we can't say that she is only a married woman. However, again, they're in the minority judgments. So, I suppose, Mr Justice Hogan essentially argued that while the family is founded on marriage, that doesn't necessarily mean that Article 41 is exclusive to the married family, but it's more of a jumping off point to focus on the tenets of marriage, that being committed relationships. Although I should say that he noted that all marriage relationships aren't necessarily very committed but anyway so um what does all this mean in terms of the referendum um, my own view is that there may actually not be that much practical change by virtue of this amendment in light of the precedent set out by omara so omara is an incredibly important helpful case and had it not happened i think this amendment would have meant a lot meant a lot more but by virtue of that judgment alone, the legislature should be reconsidering a considerable amount of laws that differentiates based on marriage or civil partnership to those who are cohabiting. So to vote yes would be to align with the Supreme Court's thinking and further push the legal and kind of symbolic case for more inclusive legislation for committed relationships, notwithstanding the absence of marriage. A no vote would perhaps be seen to be a, to a future bench as a clear rebuttal actually of the Supreme Court's judgment, which was more inclusive. Um, and it could perhaps solidify that the state can offer less protections to unmarried couples and perhaps even at a lower threshold than the court found in O'Mara. So I should note that for anyone who is considering voting no because they have a concern about married families being dropped from the hierarchy, Article 41.3.1 is the second half of the first referendum, if you like. Um, and what it says, it continues to say, is that um, the state pledges itself to guard the special care of the institution of marriage and to, pre to protect it against attack. So even, for example, if we do change Article 41 to include durable relationships, there is still a constitutional guarantee that the state can still favour married couples. Um, therefore, even if the referendum passes, the court and the legislature will still be entitled, basically, um, to favour married couples. As if, and so if Amara hadn't happened, basically, this referendum wouldn't pack the punch that I think it intended to do. So thank you so much. Thanks very much, John. I'm going to take the baton fairly directly from Claire and speak to you about the conception of home that we can see in Article 41.2 uh, and how that connects to other ideas of home in the Constitution. And then speak a little bit more about the background to the wording that will be before everybody um, in March on changing Article 41.2, that is the protection for the place of the woman in the home, as it is colloquially put. Um, so 
Um, Lindsay very helpfully set out a lot of the background to uh, the Article 41 provisions. Significant to note, I think, that these provisions in relation to the family were new, very new, in 1937. The 1922 constitution that had come before us contained no such provisions, if you like, laden with Catholic uh, teaching in respect of the family and the home. So um, it's introduction in, 19, in 1937 was a new departure and it was a new departure that sparked debate in uh, the Dáil at the time, particularly around uh, the provision in relation to the role of the woman in the home and whether uh, in reality the provision included had any teeth at all. Uh, so there were some suggestions in the Dáil debates that in fact this provision was in substance a provision that could have been included in Article 45 of the Constitution. And that is a place in the Constitution where principles of social policy are located that are not, in fact, justiciable. That's to say you can't raise those principles in court as a means of asserting rights. Um, and the concern that was reflected in the Dáil debates in that respect has really been borne out in substance, insofar as the provisions in relation to the woman in the home have had very little impact on judicial decisions in the courts, and equally uh, very limited obvious uh, impact um, in, in policy making. So uh, in the legal sphere, really one notable case over the whole history of the 1937 constitution can be identified where a meaningful attempt was made, if you like, to use uh, the provision in relation to the women in the home as a tool to secure practical benefits uh, for women. And that was the decision of L and L. Uh, and it was a case where uh, a woman had worked in the home for a long period of time, had made no financial contributions to the property uh, that the family shared together, uh, and her brave lawyers, uh, including uh, the, the uh, now retired Justice uh, Catherine McGuinness, uh, mounted an argument where they tried to revive some use of this provision in relation to the women in the home, and argued that her work in the home ought in and of itself be deemed to be a contribution to uh, the home that was capable of being recognised by the court in the same way as, for example, paying the mortgage uh, on a monthly basis would have been. Uh, the rationale being by working in the home, she had freed up uh, the um, uh, husband in that relationship to do that financial work uh, in, in, uh, outside the home. Uh, that argument succeeded in the High Court and Judge Barr f uh, found that in applying complex rules of private law that decide how contributions to the purchase of properties turn into property rights, if you like, uh, that the courts, because of Article 41.2, were obliged to take account of a homemaker's work uh, in, in reaching that calculation. And he in fact awarded her a 50% on equal interest in that family home. Uh, unfortunately, um, for the future of that provision as a practical tool for women, that decision was overturned in the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court taking the view that this was really for the courts to step into a legislative role uh, inappropriately, rather than to uh, assume the traditional role of the courts of redefining and reframing legal principles. Uh, and we've seen debate right up to the Amara decision that Claire just mentioned on what in fact Article 41.2 uh, covers. Uh, so interesting debate between um, the Chief Justice and other judges in the O'Mara decision as to whether married women 
or unmarried women are captured by that protection. Whether married mothers or unmarried mothers are captured by that protection. Chief Justice O'Donnell going so far as to suggest that in his view, uh, unmarried mothers were as invisible to the constitutional drafters in 1937 as they were in public life more broadly at that time. So debate ongoing about exactly the scope uh, of Article 41.2's reach, if you like, in relation to both the home and uh, the types of homes captured by Article 41.2, and with that, the women captured by those provisions. Uh, interestingly, one other earlier decision uh, raised the possibility that implicitly uh, the work of men in the home might be captured by Article 41.2, uh, an idea that was floated in an earlier decision but not taken up thereafter in subsequent case law. So, does home have a place? in the Irish constitutional framework at all, if its impact has been, if you like, limited and underdeveloped in the context of Article 41.2. Uh, two other places of note, the only other place where home is specifically mentioned is in Article 42.2 of the Constitution, which guarantees the right to parents to educate their children at home, uh, and that's not been developed at all by the courts. Um, and the closest comparator that we have, really, is Article 40.5 of the Constitution, which protects everybody's right to the inviolability of their dwelling. Uh, that is, the place that they live, regardless of whether they own it or not. Uh, but what's interesting, I think, for our debate today, when you look at the approach of the courts to that provision, has been that they have interpreted that protection for the home as very much a negative guarantee, that is, a protection of a sphere of privacy against state intervention or interference within the home, rather than, than as any more substantive guarantee a right to a home or to any positive state support in relation to the acquisition or the maintenance of a place to live. And that bears, I think, quite directly on the, the debate that we're having at the moment about Article 41.2. Uh, and I'll just briefly um, recap on how we got to the current proposal that you all have before you today. Interestingly, there's a significant degree of citizen input into the overall debate that has led to the referendum that we've had today. So we had two iterations of citizens' assemblies, that is, uh, representative groups of citizens who are brought together to hear from experts and learn about potential constitutional reform and then issue recommendations on that. Two iterations of that fed into the process leading up to the referendum that we'll be having next month. Uh, but the wording that we will see, uh, and that you can see before you today, um, is critiqued for being a somewhat diluted version of what was recommended uh, in those two iterations by citizens, specifically insofar as it doesn't impose any substantive obligation on the state in relation to protecting in a practical way, in the kind of way, for example, that was being argued for in the LNL case, uh, doesn't impose that kind of obligation on the state. Uh, the key language, the critical language used in the proposal is that the state shall strive to provide support for uh, care work in the home. And that language, interestingly, is language that we only see otherwise in the Irish Constitution in Article 45. That is the provision that I mentioned to you earlier as being non-justiciable, that is only for consideration in the political sphere rather than in the judicial sphere. So it is significant, I think, that the proposal isn't to put a new provision into that non-justiciable section of the Constitution. That was an idea that was proposed at various 
junctures leading up to this referendum. Um, because in some interesting decisions in the past, notably in relation to property rights, the courts have said, look, if we had a choice as to whether to put a provision, if you like, in the main body of the constitution or in this section that is not for the attention of the courts, and we decide to put it in the section that is for the attention of the courts, that suggests the courts can do something with this provision, that, that, that this isn't a provision that is out of bounds. So it's interesting in that we have language uh, that is weak and reflective of those directive principles, but an, an overt decision uh, to choose to put this provision in relation to care in the main body of the Constitution. Significantly, I think, um, it would be put in the main body of the Constitution by a current referendum, that is a current vote of the people, um, and that would be regarded as giving renewed democratic impetus, if you like, to the idea that the value um, of care work in the home is respected uh, and uh, is something that the state has to look to. Against that, uh, we do consider this constitutional referendum against the backdrop of a judicial culture in Ireland that has traditionally uh, shown reluctance to give directions to um, the elected branches of government in respect of how to spend resources. Okay, so in thinking about how a court might interpret uh, the strive to support language, it's important to bear in mind that general judicial concern that in order to show due respect to democratic decision making, judges ought to defer considerably to the democratic processes decisions in relation to the expenditure of public funds. So uh, it is likely that at the very least, um, if the uh, proposed amendment is enacted, the state would continue to be given by the courts very considerable leeway uh, in how it would fulfil its obligation uh, to strive to support care within the home. Um, and um, the duty language um, and the direction of the um, uh, injunction to society rather than the state uh, would be new provisions for the courts to deal with thereafter. But um, it is likely, I think, reflecting Claire's views on uh, durable relationships, uh, that we would be un, uh, unlikely to expect a dramatic change in approach on these issues from the Irish courts if the amendment is adopted. So thank you very much uh, for your attention and I look forward to the discussion. Uh, good evening. Um, thanks for inviting me to participate. I was the only man on the panel. <laughs> I feel a little bit nervous. Um, so I, I just want to begin at the outset by saying I am not advocating a no vote. I'm not purporting to tell anybody how they should vote. But I am telling you why I am going to vote no on specifically to the care referendum and the wording of 42B. So in order for you to gauge the authority or legitimacy of what I have to say, I need to explain. I'm a senator on the Trinity panel, elected recently. Um, but as an army officer, I did my PhD on the experiences of my female colleagues in Oglignaheren in the Irish Armed Forces. Long story short, that PhD uncovered shockingly high levels of abuse, harassment, bullying, sexual assault, up to including rape. <coughs> of a sample of 60 of my female colleagues that I interviewed, 59 reported some form of abuse and, as I said, up to and including rape. Um, when my research was published, I experienced what is now known as whistleblower reprisal. I was beaten, I was uh, suffered uh, 
a sustained campaign of character assassination by the military authorities, by the general staff, by the Department of Defence. It was alleged that I breached the Official Secrets Act, which is a criminal offence. I thought I'd go to prison. So I'm somebody over the last 20 years as an academic who's published in the area of, you know, both men and women operating in and out of prescribed gender roles in the workplace. So I have an interest in that area. So I hope you bear that in mind uh, when you weigh up what I have to say about the wording of 42B. Um, so, yeah, what I would say about feminism is, you know, enjoy it sensibly. It destroyed my military career, blew up all my friendships. But anyway, um, so look, I'm a parent. I'm a carer. I have, I have four kids. My eldest is 23, uh, living his best life. I've my 22-year-old Owen, who's a neuromuscular disease. He's a student in Dublin Business School. I have a 19-year-old daughter, more of which later. And then my youngest boy is 16. He's in transition. My eldest, sorry, my 22-year-old was diagnosed with a neuromuscular illness, Pelosius Merzbacher disease, in 2002. And that's when I entered the parallel universe in Ireland of being a carer and having a disabled citizen as a member of the family. It is Alice through the looking glass. We live in a parallel universe. And I've, I, I can't overemphasize that to you. Everything is a fight. You're fighting the Department of Social Protection, the Department of Health, the Health Services Executive, the Revenue Commissioners. There is absolute contempt in this state for disabled citizens. I don't know why. It's another debate. I think it's some kind of a weird post-Catholic, post-colonial shame thing. We are outliers in European terms in, in how we legislate for the rights of disabled citizens. We're the only country in the European Union where disabled citizens and carers have no right to treatments, therapy, support, surgical interventions. That's why you have children in uh, awaiting complex spinal surgery, children becoming permanently paralysed on that waiting list as we speak. Because Disabled citizens in Ireland are considered, and disabled children are considered as having less human value than other citizens. And the discrimination and the cruelty that's meted out to disabled citizens and carers would not be tolerated, quite rightly, for any other protected category of citizen. This wording is a missed opportunity, and it is a very, very deliberate wording. You have it there. The government, the Attorney General, Cabinet, they rushed this wording through. They Minister Roderick O'Gorman went to the committees and used the government uh, majority to make sure that there was no PLS, no pre-legislative scrutiny of the legislation. I sit on two of those committees and the government representatives came in and voted down any pre-legislative uh, scrutiny. The amendments to the constitution were rushed and guillotined through both houses and such is the timeline of the legislation that even if they had accepted an amendment it couldn't have been incorporated. You have to understand where this government resides ideologically. They are highly resistant to the idea that disabled citizens ought to have any rights. And we are European outliers in that regard. So the wording says that uh, we would strive to support care. And it gives constitutional expression, read it, to the notion that care is primarily or exclusively the responsibility of the family. Both the, the, the Citizens' Assembly and the Joint Eroptics Committee on Gender Equality, headed up by Ivana Bacic, leader of the Labour Party, 
They both strongly recommended that the wording include a commitment on the part of government to support care in the community. The wording is really simple from the Citizens' Assembly. The state shall take reasonable measures to support care within families, hooray, and the wider community and shall promote and protect the rights of people with disabilities to live independently and enjoy full inclusion and participation in the community. The government struck that down. The Joint Directors Committee asked that they include support for independent living and care outside of the home. Struck down. So we have this wording, strive to, which, as you quite rightly pointed out, is not justiciable. And that word was very carefully chosen to indemnify the state for, from any legal obligation to support citizens with additional needs, whether it be disabled citizens, children, adults, or elderly people. World Health Organization, every single one of us will become disabled in our lifetime for an average of eight years. If you vote for this amendment, sorry, I'm not <laughs> proposing how people should vote. I couldn't in conscience vote for this. I've struggled. I don't, I, in the last 20 years, I'm a senator. I'm a, you know, a noisy, uh, provocative person who, who's well able to advocate. In the last 20 years, I have not received one hour of respite from the state in relation to my son's care. Now, when he went from the paediatric to the adult services in 2019, take note, 2019, not 1919 or 1819. I approached the local disability services manager and asked what was the plan for my son for him to transition and live independently. And they said, well, he lives at home with you. That's the plan. And I said, well, what happens when I die? And they said, I'll put you on to the social worker. Social worker said, but you're living at home. He's living at home with you. That's the plan. I said, but what happens when I die? And she said to me, she said to me, does he have siblings? Yes. Does he have a sister? Yes. Well, she look after him when you die. And that is the ideological position that's held in Conservative Ireland as given expression in this wording in 42b. It does not vindicate the rights of either the family, carers, disabled citizens, the elderly. It is a complete and utter... You know, I have no issue with what we're taking out of the Constitution, the anachronistic references to women in the home and so on and so forth. But we really need to stop and think about what we're going to put into the Constitution. And I think this gives the, you know, the state and the health services executive an opt-out for providing us with support. And that's been my experience. And, you know, as a senator, Trinity students are my constituency, sorry, Trinity graduates, of which 75,000 are registered to vote. I don't know who voted for me, but thank you. <laughs> Trinity graduates don't write to me. They don't email me. I get emails, hundreds of emails every week from families who are in crisis. Elderly parents in their 70s and 80s to whom adult children in their 50s and 60s are being returned to them for this decongregation. I have families who go into crisis, they're diagnosed with a terminal illness, and the child, you know, an adult child, 20, 30 years old, there is no appropriate accommodation, no supports in the community, and they are inappropriately placed in nursing homes. There are 2,000 adults, young, younger adults, in their 30s and 40s, pl inappropriately placed in nursing homes in and around the greater Dublin area. It's an archipelago of neglect. And this, this wording 
Last year, I introduced a disability rights bill into the Shannon, which would, for the first time, bring Ireland into line with the rest of the European Union to give disabled citizens the right to treatments, therapies, surgeries, imagine, to give them that right, and also to have respite and care. The Cabinet issued an instruction that it be struck down, and only because of a rebellion on the government side, we managed to get it to the next stage. Two weeks ago in the Shannon, in a debate on care, a government private member's motion on care, I proposed an amendment that we immediately adopt the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, including the optional protocol, which would vindicate Article 19, giving people a right to independent living and care supports. And the government voted it down. So all the hand-wringing and all of the, you know, I heard yesterday, unbelievably, that Minister O'Gorman and the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, both said in interviews, this is great, families can now sue the state for the services and supports that they're not getting. We, we live, this is dystopian. I, I think this is a retrograde step, the, the wording. I think it's a missed opportunity. I know a lot of uh, feminists are kind of holding their nose on this and saying, well, it's better than what's there. But it tramples all over a, a, a group of citizens in, in our republic that are egregiously discriminated against at every hand's turn on, on, on every basis. Um, so look, I think I've gone past my 10 minutes and I'm happy to answer any questions later on. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom, and thanks to all four of you. I feel so glad I've been here to listen to, to you talk, all of you, with such clarity and authority and also passion about this. We're obviously coming to a moment when we're seeing that huge irony of a democracy working at the same time as not working. Yeah. Uh, and we need to tease out not just a single issue here, but a whole raft of intersecting issues and problems that are going to surface around the decision on the 8th of March. Uh, in a second, I'm going to open to the floor for questions, but I just want to give the panel a couple of minutes, uh, if you want to put your microphones on, in case any of the four of you would like to add anything, clarify anything, or ask each other a, a question or make a point in relation to, to what you've heard from your fellow panelists. Anyone have anything they just want to add or, or clarify? I'm um, picking up on um, Tom, your question around competing views as to the likely legal impact of these provisions, whether they could be raised in court, etc. Um, it's entirely speculative at this stage, we have to hand this over to judges and see what they do, but just trying to unpack a few aspects that to a certain extent cut in different directions uh, in terms of the wording of the new 42 section. Um, as I noted, the wording of uh, choice in the provision strive um, is only otherwise contained in the constitution in article 45, which is a non-justiciable provision of the constitution. That being said, the courts have never interpreted the meaning of the word strive because those provisions have never come before the courts. Okay? Um, so um, we will have to wait and see what, in reality, we'll have to wait and see what courts say about the wording of strive to support. Um, Article 41.2 has been interesting. So, so there's a tendency in Irish constitutional law and practice for certain provisions to um, fall out of vogue, if you like, um, with judges 
uh, and thereafter they tend not to be raised in constitutional argument by practitioners very often. And as a result of that, you don't see uh, a huge amount of judicial reflection on what provisions do and what they can mean. And that's very much the story of Article 41.2, uh, limited success in early cases, and thereafter, in reality, barristers stop making arguments based on those constitutional provisions. So it's a very long time since we've heard the courts reflecting on the potential impact of that provision, and Omara's recent discussion of it is the first in an extremely long time. Um, as I mentioned, returning to Article 42, uh, the new proposed Article 42 section, it is significant, I think, that it is being included in the judicially enforceable part of the Constitution, if adopted. Uh, one of the proposals floated in the process leading up to this um, referendum, in particular in the interdepartmental report that followed from the earliest citizen uh, deliberation on this, was that it simply be included in Article 45 of the Constitution. Uh, and in that section, uh, if you like, there would be no hope for uh, a legally effective principle to be generated by the referendum because the provisions in that section are expressly stated to be only for consideration in politics, not for consideration in the courts. Um, so we'll have to see how the courts reconcile the somewhat conflicting pieces of the puzzle in relation to the new uh, wording if it is adopted by, con uh, by referendum. That would be my Thank you, Rachel. And for you, Anne-Claire, a very quick question about the effectiveness or the lack of effectiveness of the court system. Are we looking not just at a faulty constitution, but, and this is much too big a question I know for tonight, but are we looking at the failure of the court system itself to really have any teeth when it comes to using the constitution uh, and, and interpreting it and reinterpreting it? And I know I'm aware the lawyers in the room will want to come in on this at a later <laughs> stage, but Clara, you up. It's tricky because I think, uh, I was thinking about this, you know, about how the Constitution is led down into the legislation, which is then obviously used day to day in the courts. Thank you. Um, and the difficulty is that uh, I was thinking there's kind of four big key areas where this matters, you know. And one is, okay, what's the nature, nature of your relationship? Is it married? Is it civil partnership? Is it cohabitation? And then it matters again when you have a child. It matters again when your relationship breaks down. And it matters again when you die, which is very grim, sorry, Liz. But uh, so, so in those four key areas, I think the, the government has also been hard at work to implement to an extent what has come before it, which hasn't been very hopeful, do you know? Omara has given us the first big hope mm. for kind of the, the, and it'll be for the government and the legislature to try and drive that now through amendments that the courts can then work with. But uh, in fairness, I think the court, the the, the courts day to day, I suppose just to distinguish them, like the family law courts day to day from the constitutional courts, they're just following what's been put in front of them. I think, mm. but there's hope now, you know. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> I, just, uh, I think it's worth distinguishing between what we might call big constitutional cases and small constitutional cases, and. You know, the big constitutional cases are one wherein a piece of legislation is challenged in a fundamental way, as we saw in O'Mara. Um, large principles are articulated, uh, and, and those are the cases that tend to make headlines. Um, but we also have small constitutional cases, as I would call it, which is you know, small cases where individuals are taking action against, whether it be local authorities in the housing context, um, 
HSE cases in the disability services context and there you might see the constitution uh, expressly raised more often than not you don't mm -hmm. um, but the constitution forms a backdrop to those small cases um, and changes in the constitution can have a gradual incremental impact I think on how those small cases are decided and those small cases obviously are not small for the individuals involved in them. Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder whether um, change uh, at a constitutional level um, might, even if it's not the kind of change structured to create headline change, mm. uh, incrementally shift the judicial uh, environment within which those small cases uh, take place in a way that's meaningful. Thank you, Rachel. That's a more reassuring picture, I think. I've got Lindsay briefly wanted to come in, and then Tom before we go to the audience. Yeah, I just wanted to ask a question of clarification. Um, if I understood you correctly, Rachel, you were saying how a no vote would be interpreted at the end of your paper. You said a yes would, in relation to the Amara judgment, which is the one you find hopeful, a yes would be to side with that Supreme Court, and a no would be. I think that was clear, right? Clear, sorry. sorry. <laughs> uh, so different than that. Yeah, yeah. No. yeah. and and that will be turned as a rebuttal. So, um, so sorry, it's really tricky to figure out. You know, obviously, what way the Supreme Court would take anything. But there was a recent case, uh, Reed JJ in uh, twenty twenty one, and it was basically for the first time really looking at the referendum, the children's referendum, and a lot of the discussion by the Supreme Court was basically, okay, what did the people vote for? What was there before? And by kind of analogy, of that word what should we now take it to mean? Because surely there must have been a change, surely there must have been something. So what I'm worried about a little bit would be kind of the timeline. So the Supreme Court has said very clearly, okay, well, do you know what, we've given this case a really strong push for equality, a really strong push to move the unmarried couples and married couples to kind of a similar, nice, you know, um, benchmark. And I suppose what I'm concerned about is, in a later case, if they had to consider, okay, this amendment wasn't passed, and so now we have to consider what Article 41 means in the face of the public actively saying no to general relationships. Mm -hmm. And it would be in the context of, well, a couple of months, of, uh, a month, in fact, before we had this, we clarified the strong protections that were there, you know? And so surely if the public voted for this, they must have voted in opposition to what we were trying to kind of get them to, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I suppose that's my concern that it's, it, it, it's surprising to me sometimes how much the court will actually look at the the, the run up to it, the the narrative, what what the public were saying and what they believed it would mean, you know. And so I think Omara happening at this particular time will have an effect. If we vote no, you know, it'll have an effect on what the court will deem it to have meant. been an absolutely terrific panel and my warmest thanks to Tom, to Rachel, to Claire and to Lindsay. Briefly thanks to the Trinity Long Room Hub team, particularly Eva King and Christina Hamilton who've been on duty tonight and Shelby Zimmerman at the back there. Uh, this has been sponsored by the John Pollard Foundation and I want to express once again my thanks to the Pollard Foundation. Um, there are plenty more events coming up, so please do keep an eye on the Trinity Long Room Hub website. I'd love you all to join us again. You've been an absolutely terrific audience. Thank you for coming. I will see you at the polls on the 8th of March. Good night, everybody.